rent stabilization and the system of uh, rent regulation in New York City and elsewhere. And so to discuss that first, uh, we have on Frank Ricci, who is the Director of Government Affairs at the Rent Stabilization Association. Frank, welcome to Max and Murphy. Thank you for having me. So Frank, tell us, for those who are uninitiated, uh, what is RSA? Who, who belongs to that and what do you guys do? Yeah, the, the Rent Stabilization Association is a uh, private trade association that represents building owners in the city. Up until 1984, we were a quasi-state agency. The law said you had to be a member of RSA if you owned a building with six units or more. If you didn't join, then all your units were in rent control instead of rent stabilization. So we became a private trade association in 84, and, and we advocate on behalf of building owners in the city. Since you mentioned the two terms that come up a lot in this in this conversation, and, and sometimes it's easy to get confused, uh, and you obviously are pretty fluent in them, explain to listeners the difference between rent control and rent stabilization. Well, rent control, there's, I believe, at the last um, housing and vacancy survey that was done by the city, they estimated that there are about 22,000 rent-controlled units left in the city. Uh, rent control was instituted back in World War II. Um, everything built after that up until 19. 19- 1974 was not regulated. Uh, in 1974, the the legislature saw fit to uh, re-regulate buildings with six units or more, so they put them in stabilization. And what has happened since then is that when a building, when a, when a rent control tenant uh, would move out or pass on, those units then would become rent stabilized. So there's about, I believe, 980,000 rent stabilized units. I think the big difference now, I mean, there, there's a lot of very esoteric small differences, but um, the big difference now is that for rent-stabilized tenants, which is the majority of the units, the rent increase is determined by the Rent Guidelines Board, which is a nine-member board appointed by the mayor. For rent control tenants, there's a formula that DHCR uh, formulates every two years. It's called the uh, maximum base rent um, system, So, and, and that's how rent increases are applied to rent control departments. And uh, in terms of, so so we're we're really talking about uh, we're not talking about rent control here. We're we're talking about the the many other the majority of the the units that we're talking about under these types of rules and laws. But and as you say, the rent guidelines board will determine uh, the rent increases or rent freeze, as we've seen in recent years, or potentially a rent rollback. Although I don't believe we've seen that. Um, but but what the framework that they're working under is determined by the state law. Correct. But so, but I think when you know, look, we all know that rent regulation, which is the general term we use to encompass both system systems, is going to be renewed this year in some form or another. They will be renewing. You know, they will reauthorize uh, localities that do have rent control, which is primarily New York City, to to continue rent control and rent stabilization. But yeah, you're correct. The majority of tenants affected. Uh, and owners affected by by the renewal of the laws will be rent stabilized units. So, Frank, you make your business to you know follow the politics at the city and state level and, and talk to people who are in it. And obviously, we've been talking about the state budget, what it does and doesn't reflect about changing fortunes in Albany. How do you assess the landscape there now compared to previous years when rent regs have come up for reform? What's, what's different? What's the same? Uh, what do you see it looking like? Well, obviously, the political dynamic has changed. Um, what I see now is that, that there is probably, in my opinion, going to be a much more robust debate about the actual specifics involving rent regulation 
than there has been before because, you know, elected officials, uh, the Democratic Party controls both houses. They're going to have to focus on that. And in the past, I think that this issue was always left to the very end. Uh, there was always sort of a stalemate and, and something got passed. And with minor changes, you know, everyone's talking about bigger changes now. Um, it, it remains to be seen how big those changes are. But, you know, I, I can tell you our expectation, and I'm, I'm assuming that's going to be your next question, is we'd like to see a robust debate on the actual specifics of how this system is implemented. And, and you know, I, I think from our perspective, um, much of the debate, much of the rhetoric, certainly, that, that led to the changes in the uh, makeup of the, of the legislature uh, had to do with just, you know, the the um, the income side of what owners and building owners take in, and there's rarely, rarely is there discussion except by us, and we try and get it out there, about the expense side that owners have to face. So that's sort of what we're hoping to, to have a good debate about. And so what does that lead to? I mean, what do, what do you push for folks to understand about that equation? Well, that equates, so, um, you know, the best way, I think, for people to understand it, and certainly people who own co-ops and condos understand this because they have to pay their yearly maintenance, and they get a breakdown of how their costs have risen dramatically over the last 20 years, and and for rental building owners, it's no different. And, you know, I, I lay this squarely at the feet of Mayor Bloomberg, who really, you know, raised taxes in a way that no other mayor had ever done before him. Uh, he had this unprecedented mid-year tax rate increase, not once but twice, and then assessments were through the roof. And so, whereas when he took office back in 2002, for every rent dollar an owner took in, about 18% of that rent dollar went towards paying taxes in water and sewer. Now, it's up to 35 to 40%. So taxes, and, and I'm including water and sewer rates in that too because that's gone up astronomically, has taken a much bigger bite out of the bottom line for every building owner in the city. And some of that's been passed on to the tenants. They've been insulated because of the political nature of the rent guidelines board. They haven't paid the full ride on that. But it's certainly put a lot of pressure on owners to figure out other ways to, to increase the income stream of the buildings so that they can, A, maintain the building and make a profit. And um, so, you know, we're hoping to have more of a debate on what owners face when it comes to the expenses on a daily basis. So let's talk for a second first about some of the proposals that the tenant advocates have made on the, as you mentioned, kind of the income side, um, getting rid of vacancy decontrol, vacancy bonuses, reforming or getting rid of preferential rents, addressing how major capital improvements get worked into people's rents. Uh, what do you think about those kind of individual ideas? And, and is there need for, for some tweaking on those to be, to be fair in addition to thinking about uh, dealing more? explicitly with landlord costs? Well, uh, you know, you started the show off, I believe it was you, Jared, who said, you know, we're going to talk about rent regulation today and it affects millions of people in New York City. And you're right. But some of those millions of people, you know, work, hundreds of thousands of those people work in the real estate industry in New York City. So, you know, to start, I don't know how specific you want to become about major capital improvements and individual apartment improvements and vacancy allowances, 
but you know, if I can lump those all together just for simplicity, those are all mechanisms within the rent stabilization um, system that allow an owner to increase rent, uh, usually on vacant apartments, and, and that allows the owner's income stream to grow. And so when we talk about, you know, uh, curtailing those, you know, it's going to hurt owners because they're going to have less income. But at the end of that pipeline, the people who are going to get hurt are the people who do the work in those apartments. So, you know, there are literally tens of thousands of people every day who are renovating apartments. There's people who do tile work. There's people who do demolition, carpenters, plumbers, electricians, etc. If owners don't are not able to get a return on their investment uh, by investing and upgrading those apartments, they're going to use Band-Aids instead of major upgrades. And in the long run, that's going to hurt tenants. And, you know, the real estate industry is criticized often for crying wolf, saying, oh, it's going to hurt. Well, you know, it is going to hurt, but you're not going to see it the first year or the second year, but you'll, you'll see it down the road. So the other thing I think people need to keep in mind about playing with or curtailing any of those income streams, and, and this is something that that we need to keep reminding, we being the RSA, would like to keep reminding people about, is that the average age of the buildings we're talking about is over 75 years old. So those buildings do need major upgrades in, in, in systems as well as individual units. So, um, and, and I think there's a lot of agreement on, on that front. I mean, I think what we've heard a lot from, let's just take the major capital improvements uh, aspect of the, of the laws. I think we've heard a lot of discussion even from Democratic lawmakers. There are some who, want, who say do away with the MCI program, but there's a lot who say we understand that it's necessary sometimes to pass some of the costs of those types of capital improvements on to tenants, but we want to make it a little bit more of a modest uh, – passed on burden and we also want to not make it in perpetuity on on the MCI program from your perspective what's a what's a workable change to the MCIs well uh, I don't know what a workable change is but certainly I would say it would, whatever it is has to be permanent because there would be no reason in the world to let's say go out and spend a hundred thousand dollars and that's not going to be hard to do especially if the city council and is in, and it's probably eminent that they're going to do something on requiring building, buildings to retrofit themselves to comply with um, lowering greenhouse gas and, and, and mm-hmm. doing energy retrofits. So the only way to achieve some of the limits they're talking about is going to be major upgrades in the heating systems of buildings. So $100,000 is not unheard of. But for an owner, why would you go out, refinance your building and pay the interest cost, which is not part of the MCI, spend $100,000 just to get $100,000 back over the next 10 years. They're just not going to do it. Whether it's an energy upgrade or any kind of major system upgrade, it just makes no sense to spend $100,000 and get $100,000 back when you could take that same $100,000 and put it in the bank or invest in something else and get a return on your investment. So I think people need to be cognizant of that. So they're not going to do the upgrades. They'll use, as I, the term I used before is band-aids. So they'll do what they, they can have to do to get by. And, and the one thing we didn't talk about, and I know you asked, um, Jared, I believe, about preferential rents, that's just an issue. I just don't understand why they 
independent groups are opposed to that. We keep hearing, we've, for years, we've heard anecdotally about owners that have uh, charged a new tenant a preferential rent just to bring them into the building and then jack the rent up the next year. Or two. That, that makes no sense from a business plan for any owner. And so we've actually done some analysis based on rent registration data that we collect from our members. And it turns out that 90% of all preferential rents on existing tenants are still preferential the next year. And the average increase is under 5%. So owners do that because either the market won't accept a, a higher rent or they just happen to like their tenants and they want to keep, keep those tenants in place because every owner will always take a little less money if you have a responsible tenant who's not causing any problems in the building and pays their rent on time. That's worth a lot to owners. So I just don't understand why the preferential rent issue has perked up other than the fact that the mayor, this current mayor, de Blasio, has given so many rent-stabilized tenants either a zero or a 1% increase every year for five years that owners have felt the need to increase the preferential rent tenants more than they normally would to make up for the lack of a rent increase from everyone else. So that's one of the unintended consequences that I think the mayor never anticipated, but that's probably what's happening out there. Frank, actually, I wanted to talk about that in, in the few seconds we have left, which is obviously the state sets the rules of the game, and then the local board, in this case the RGB, Rent Guidelines Board, decides on whether and by how much to increase rents each year. And that's where, at least in the current system, landlord costs are supposed to figure in to the decisions they make. Um, what are the prospects this year, do you think, for the RGB? Do you suspect there'll be a modest increase, as was the case last year? Will you see something bigger in and, and why doesn't that system adequately account, in, in your view, uh, landlord costs? Because they're, they're supposed to. Well, it doesn't. I mean, because of politics. So, I mean, the last couple of years, the average price index of operating costs has been, been between 4 and 6% every year. Yet the Rent Guidelines Board gave 1%, 0, 0, then 1.25. And then I think, you know, what you referred to as a modest increase, 1.5%. I mean, is really nothing in the scheme of things for an owner trying to pay, you know, uh, trying trying to meet a tax bill or a water bill that's gone up astronomically. And 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 you know, just if I can make one other point about sure. things that that really are getting out of hand. Almost every owner we talk to nowadays in this business, they pay more for water and sewer rates, more water and sewer taxes, than they do for fuel to heat their buildings in the entire year. The water, think about that. The water bill is higher than the oil bill or the gas bill for a typical, let's say, 50, 100-unit building in the city. That's that's unbelievable in my my from my perspective that owners are you know having to go through that and it just shows how much of the burden of living in New York City has been passed on to the owners. Well, Frank, thank you for giving us that perspective. It was valuable to hear. We have to switch gears. I'm sorry about that, but thanks for joining us. Frank Ricci, the Director of Government Affairs at the Rent Stabilization Association. Uh, Thanks very much for calling in, and we're going to be on the line shortly with Michael McKee from Tenants Pack. But uh, what Frank said is what we'll ask Mike to respond to, and he'll be ready because to some degree the contours of the politics (laughs) this year are different, but the argument at least 
for the past several years has been very much the same uh, from, from, from both sides and, and as, as you would expect it to be. Right. I mean, the numbers changed just a tiny bit, you know, year to year. And then you have, um, as you said, the political landscape changing at least somewhat. I mean, that's one of the big outstanding questions, right, is how much has the political landscape really changed? And that's where in the state budget, you had some of that griping from some of the new Democratic senators who thought they were coming to Albany with two Democratic majorities and moving to the left and really going to do some more sweeping things and felt like the budget agreement came up short, you know, let's see what that looks like when it comes to the rent regulation debate. Um, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask Frank, if we have more time, you know, is who who are the allies, you know, that the that the landlords have in Albany? Is it really just on Governor Cuomo's shoulders to really moderate things? Um, you know, we saw some of this stuff flare up with the proposed pied-a-terre tax. Uh, we've seen some of it flare up with, with just taxes in general. And obviously, Governor Cuomo on fiscal matters is a moderating force in in Albany, even if the Senate Republicans were still in power, you know, he was still more aligned with them on a lot of fiscal matters than than Democrats in the assembly. So so now this discussion will get very interesting. You know, we also didn't get a chance. I wanted to ask Frank and, you know, we'll have to have him back on or somebody else with similar perspectives. But, um, you know, this idea of ending vacancy decontrol should you know, is that something they believe in? How, you know, the idea that when the rents are getting up to about the, the limit that gets you out of uh, stabilization, when somebody leaves the apartment, should they be taken off the stabilization rules? I mean, I think that's going to be a fascinating discussion. Definitely. It has been in the past. It will be again. And let's talk about that and other stuff with our next guest, Mr. Michael McKee, who is the treasurer of Tenants Pack. Michael, welcome to Max and Murphy. Hey, how are you guys? Doing well. Thanks for being on. We're going to start uh, you with the same question we started our last guest with, uh, which is the political landscape in Albany. We've been talking about it for months, how much it's changed regarding budget items. Now the budget is done. How do you assess it? What do you think the prospects are for the kind of rent regulation changes that you and the tenant movement uh, want to see? I'm uh, guardedly optimistic. Um, and... Um, the mere fact that we have a Democratic majority in both houses does not mean we're going to automatically win. Uh, tenants are going to have to work very hard for this, and we only have like 11 weeks uh, until the rent laws expire. Uh, so there's a huge amount of activity that needs to take place in the next few weeks, and I think it's pretty clear that, especially now that there, the, there were some significant changes on criminal justice, not that it was everything that's needed, but it was nevertheless a very significant step forward. Um, I think the big issue facing the legislature at this point is rent. And I think, you know, it's going to be a very big uh, um, effort on our part, but I think I'm, I'm actually very optimistic about this. There are many new legislators in both houses, especially in the Senate, who ran on this issue and who, you know, they feel like they've got to deliver uh, on, on uh, tenant protections and preserving affordable housing because they care about this issue deeply. Michael, talk about 
priorities for you and tenant groups? Specifically, I know there are things we've talked about for many years in terms of the mechanics of the existing program, but there also is discussion about expanding rent stabilization in the state, moving toward universal rent control, affecting cities that are not currently covered and, and properties that are not currently covered. How much of a priority is that versus uh, changes to the mechanics of the existing program? I think it's going to be a fairly easy lift to close the loopholes in the existing system. Um, And I think there are legislators who probably think they can get away with doing that. And I'm sure that uh, our dear governor, Andrew Cuomo, thinks he can get away with doing that. Uh, But I think the really big lift and the important part of this fight, uh, the more important part of this fight is we have a unique uh, opportunity to expand rent regulation and tenant protection statewide. And there are tenant groups in all parts of the state organizing for rent control, as indeed there are in other states across the country. Uh, This is a very exciting development. We've never seen this before, and it's a reflection of the fact that the situation has gotten really, really bad for people who rent. And half of New Yorkers rent, and a substantial number of them are rent burdened, and we calculate there are like a million tenants outside New York City in the suburban counties who have zero protections at the moment. I mean, they just simply have no protections at all. So, so uh, two two follow-ups on that. One, uh, let's just stick with the this latter topic on extending the rent protections in a in a you know fairly reasonable uh, framework. What does that look like? Well, the the bill to expand to remove the geographic restrictions on the Emergency Tenant Protection Act is carried by two credible upstate Democratic legislators, Neil Breslin of Albany in the Senate. He's a senior upstate Democrat in the state Senate. He's been there for, I don't know, I guess 20, 25 years. Um, And he's very much respected. And Kevin Cahill from the Assembly, who's a senior legislator, he's been in the Assembly for many, many years, and he's from Kingston. Um, And these are two areas, Albany and Kingston, where tenants are mobilizing and pressuring for rent regulation. Um, So I think, you know, that has this that has that gives us a real advantage because people listen to these two legislators within their conferences. There's going to be opposition to doing this. There's no question about it. But you would have to apply framework retroactively to certain units or how, how does it how does it how does that work in terms of is it is it only No, it would only be perspective. Okay. Okay. I mean, a municipality would have just as it happens in New York, in right. the three counties in Westchester, Nassau and Rockland, a municipality would have to do a vacancy survey, determine that the local vacancy vacancy rate is 5% or less, and then would have to vote uh, via the city council or the board of trustees or whatever the local legislative body is to opt into the system. Um, so it's not automatic. It's it's local option, and, and there's going to be a fight on a lot of local levels, but at least tenants would be have the, the ability to organize for this, whereas now they can't because state law restricts the applicability to New York City and the three suburban counties. 
Mike, you referred earlier to our dear governor, and I detected an element of sarcasm to that. Uh, oh, really? Because <laughs> that's how perceptive I am. What has Cuomo, realistically, though, what has Cuomo's record on this been? I think there have been two renewals under him in 11 and 15. Um, did they move the needle at all? And, and how he, do you view him now? He moved now? the needle teensy, teensy, teensy bit. Um, basically, they tinkered around the edges of the rent regulation system, made some very minor improvements, uh, and he called it both times a great tenant victory. And, uh, you know, his uh, rhetoric is one thing, but the reality is another. Uh, he can say this is a great tenant victory all he wants, but it doesn't make it so. And as far as I'm concerned, Andrew Cuomo is guilty until proven innocent on rent. Um, if, he, if I'm wrong and he's had a genuine conversion and not just an election year conversion, thank you, Cynthia Nixon. Um, whom, whom your group endorsed, we should know. We correct. did endorse yes. Cynthia Nixon, and we were proud to do so. And thanks to her, uh, a lot of these issues have, have, have become viable issues uh, on a statewide basis, including rent regulation. Um, but, you know, you'll pardon my cynicism. I, I, he's been governor for eight years. He has absolutely refused to do anything in terms of uh, improving the rent laws in a meaningful way. And um, I suspect he's going to be working behind the scenes while saying all of the right things in public, but also keeping it vague that he will be working behind the scenes to try to water down whatever we're trying to do. So talk about uh, those those tweaks to the current system. You said when, when we jumped to, you know, making rent regulation apply outside of, of the where it does now, you said, you know, closing some of the loopholes in the current regulation should be fairly easy. But g- give us the sort of I bu- think, bullet point. I think- I yeah. think vacancy control is gone. I think it's it's going to be repealed, uh, and you should understand that our bill does not only repeal vacancy control going forward. It re-regulates 98% of the apartments that have been lost to vacancy control in the last 25 years. So they would be put. Is there back any chance of that happening? Oh, I think it will. Wow. I mean, I think the second part is probably what Cuomo would try to undo, but I think we can beat him. Um, I think the preferential rent loophole will be def- definitely will be closed, which means that any tenant paying a preferential rent, and there's almost 300,000 of them in the city and the suburbs, um, will be protected for the life of the tenancy, whereas right now, if you're paying a preferential rent, the landlord can jump back to the legal rent uh, whenever uh, you renew your lease. Uh, the law used to be that as long as there was a preferential rent, which by definition is any rent that's lower than the legal rent for whatever reason, um, the law used to be that if you had a preferential rent, the landlord had to renew your lease based on that, plus the guidelines. But it was changed by George Pataki in 2003 to allow landlords to do this on lease renewal, and so people get faced with, you know, $800, $1,000, $1,500. I've even seen, I saw an $1,800 rent increase one time uh, some years ago uh, from the between the preferential rent and the legal rent. So that's I think those those two things are done. Um, and I think doing whatever we get done on major capital improvements and individual apartment improvements is going to be more difficult, but our bills basically eliminate rent increases for these uh, building-wide improvements and for uh, individual apartment improvements. 
um, so that you know what's happening now is that landlords are um, they're, they're letting their buildings just run down and run down and run down and then usually they're sold to a speculator who comes in and starts replacing systems new windows new wiring new roof whatever and slamming tenants with you know multiple uh, rent increases for various uh, major capital improvements and people are I know tenants who are facing rent increases of 400 500 600 dollars a month uh, and it's it's, it's got to stop and the same thing with individual apartment improvements this is a program that is rife with fraud uh, if you talk to anyone at the state housing agency privately they will tell you there is no way to administer this without allowing there's no way to administer it and stop landlords from committing fraud. It just can't be done. Um, so, Michael, this the, is a it's a it's a large. We only have a few minutes, so I want to make sure I ask this just uh, out of out ahead. of fairness. It's a large system we're talking about. Uh, you know, sh- just short of a million apartments, I think, that are rent stabilized. And so, I wonder when you hear the argument of the RSA and Frank Ricci, who was on earlier, talking about the fact that the costs landlords are facing have risen, and that the system is now not accounting for that uh, properly. That's utter nonsense. There's no legitimacy to that as far as you as far as you know first of all it's not true if you look at the data from the department of finance uh which they produce every year for the rent guidelines board owners of rent stabilized property in new york city are netting on average 42 cents on the dollar meaning that the typical average landlord of rent stabilized buildings is is spending 58 cents of every dollar of income on running the building. That's everything. And that leaves 42 cents for debt service and profit. Now that is a huge net. Think about supermarkets that operate on tiny, tiny margins. Now that that's an average, which means some landlords are netting even more and some are netting less. But you know, it's really hard to lose money on, on owning rental property in New York City. You have to be a pretty stupid landlord to lose money on, on renting out a building. So you know, they come up with one or two examples of some supposedly pathetic landlord who's got you know a nine-unit building or a ten-unit building, and and you know the two that they're running ads are right now. We know for a fact that they have several deregulated apartments. They're, they have market-rate apartments in those buildings. Meaning they're collecting market rents. So what are they complaining about? Uh, and by the way, this is not the first time the RSA has used this guy. What's his face? I don't remember his name in an ad. They used it several years ago uh, against Bill de Blasio at the Rent Guidelines Board. I mean, you know, they use these little landlords as cannon fodder, but, you know, who are the real, who, who are the real landlords here? I mean, the Durst, the, the Rudens, I mean, they own a huge amount of, of the housing stock. Uh, and uh, you know it's they're doing very well. I'm sorry, I will not cry for for landlords. And Mike, just real quick before I let you go, you mentioned the RGB. Obviously, that process uh, will be getting underway soonish. And um, yeah. what do you think is what are you hoping to see out of that uh, in terms of the the increase, if any, for this year? And what do you expect to see? Well, I mean, first of all, the the, the income and expense study. I think the income and expense study comes out tomorrow. I'm thinking it's tomorrow. Uh, and we will see if the 42 cents on the dollar net operating income has grown again. It has grown for the last 12 consecutive years. 
Um, so rents are going up much faster than operating costs, which is why the net operating income is growing. Um, and, you know, until we see the numbers, there's really no way to comment on it. I think it, it is clear that historically the Rent Guidelines Board has overcompensated landlords, uh, certainly under Bloomberg. Uh, under Giuliani, yes, but even Bloomberg was worse than Giuliani. Uh, he appointed people who, who were virulently opposed to rent regulation as a policy and thought it was their job to reward landlords for the you know uh, unfortunate fact that they were stuck under a rent law. But, um, you know, I can't really... <laughs> Speculate what's going to happen, and it's up to it's up to five of the nine members of the board uh, as to what they do. Well, thank you, Michael. We'll be following that, looking for those studies and those outcomes, and we'll stay in touch. We've been listening to Michael McKee, the treasurer of Tenants Pack. Thanks so much for being on Max and Murphy. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Mike. Bye. And so as we come to the end of another exciting edition of Max and Murphy, uh, I should point out that uh, we have scheduled to be on our show next week. City Council Speaker Corey Johnson, uh, who did a surprise call in a couple weeks ago as we were discussing his state of the city. And but liked us so much. He, he wants a longer longer time to chat with us. So we're going to have a good long chat with City Council Speaker Corey Johnson next week. Uh, looking forward to that. Should be good. In the meantime, um, there's a lot to dissect from those interviews. We won't do that now. Certainly one of the big biggest things that caught my attention was that potential looming battle over re-entering units into stabilization that have come out. We'll get back to that. City limits, give us a highlight. What do you got going on? What's something people should be either looking well, at we, or for? As we change now from state budget time to city budget time, we're looking especially on the budget for aging services, Department for the Aging, a very important part of our city's social fabric, especially as the city grays. And so we are doing a lot of reporting on that. We want seniors and, and older New Yorkers to be part of that reporting. If you use city services, if you would like to use them, if you love them, if you hate them, text SENIOR to 646-916-3930. That's 646-916-3930. Go to the City Limits website, Or go to the City Limits website. Yes, exactly. And you, Ben, what's on your table? Oh, we've got a lot of good stuff coming up. We're we're still doing a little bit of dissection of the state budget deal that came through. There's so much in it to unpack. We already did some. We've got some more coming up. Some interesting insights, actually, in an article to be published in the next couple of days on how the bail deal came to be and, and some of the next steps in that discussion. Um, and, you know, we're continuing to, to follow all the things around this Charter Revision Commission. We've covered all the expert hearings that they had, and we're looking at some of the big proposals that are in front of the commission. You did a great piece on this comprehensive planning question. We've got one on the same issue coming up. Um, we're also looking at this push by city controller Scott Stringer to uh, mandate a chief diversity officer in City Hall. Uh, I've had a reporter talk to some chief diversity officers around the country, so uh, interesting to get their perspective. So we've got some good stuff coming up. Always more to talk about than we have to do in an hour, but we're glad you joined us. Check him out at GothamGazette.com, me at CityLimits.org. I'm Jarrett. He's Ben. Thanks for joining us. I'm Max and Murphy. Have a great week in the greatest city in the world. Mm-hmm.